Hi, I'm Rochelle Young. And I'm Sam Tracy. And you're listening to Season 2 of This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy, including news, science, health, and history. This show is an all-volunteer project by students and alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, an awesome organization working to end the war on drugs. Every week on This Week in Drugs, we hope to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy. And hopefully have some fun while we're at it. We neither condemn nor condone drug use. Rather, we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. As always, we'll start things off with a discussion of the biggest drug news from the last week, a couple of quick headlines, and our forecast for the week ahead. Then, it's the second installment of February's Drug of the Month, where I'll go over the science of heroin. Up next is a discussion with Delegate Dan Morheim, who has introduced a historic package of drug reform bills in the Maryland State Legislature, including bills to legalize safe injection facilities and decriminalize the possession of all drugs. And of course, we'll wrap it up with our calls to action, because while learning about drugs is a lot of fun, none of that matters if we're not using that knowledge to make the world a better place. So thanks for joining us on episode 31 of This Week in Drugs, and we hope you enjoy the show. And now it's time for the weekly news and forecast, where Rochelle and I are going to talk about some of the biggest drug news stories from the last week, uh, run down a couple of quick headlines, and talk about some exciting stuff that's coming up. So Rochelle, do you want to start us off with the first story? Yeah, and our first story today is a huge one for SSDP listeners out there, which I assume is like 90% of our listeners. (laughs) I think so. So a bill was just introduced in Congress this past week to repeal the aid elimination penalty in the Higher Education Act. And for those who may not be familiar, the aid elimination penalty is a provision of federal law that makes students ineligible for federal financial aid if they've been convicted of even one drug-related crime. So that means for something as small as like possession of a gram of marijuana or half a gram of marijuana or whatever tiny amount, um, as long as you're convicted of that crime, including um, if you plead guilty as part of a plea deal, you could lose all of your FAFSA. Um, And this penalty doesn't apply to any other kind of crime, including rape, assaults, or even murder, just to drug-related crimes. So it's super exciting that this bill um, to repeal the aid elimination penalty is finally being introduced in Congress. Um, But it's even more specifically exciting for SSDP because fighting the aid elimination penalty was basically the reason that SSDP was born. Um, If you'd like a little more background information on um, the aid aid elimination penalty, how SSDP was involved in fighting for its repeal, um, in episode nine of This Week in Drugs, we actually talked to two former students who were major SSDP activists back in the day, uh, one of whom actually lost her financial aid because of a minor marijuana conviction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is such incredible news. I mean, when I saw that this, uh, this, this bill had been proposed, I was pretty much like jumping up and down that it, we might finally be able to completely repeal this law that SSDP has done such an amazing job of chipping away at so far. But in the past more than 15, uh, almost 20 years that we've been around, it hasn't 
been completely uh, eliminated. So hopefully we can finally eliminate the aid elimination penalty. <laughs> yes. And the, the name of the bill is actually kind of poetically perfect for us because it's called the Success Act. Um, oh, nice. <laughs> so if it passes, this will be the biggest success for SSDP. <laughs> Um, and what it actually stands for is stopping unfair collateral consequences from ending student success. Um, not sure what the odds of this actually passing through Congress is, but um, the co-sponsors of the bill so far include two Democratic senators and one Republican from Utah, Senator Orrin Hatch. So it does have bipartisan support so far. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is great. And I mean, it like all bills in this Congress, it will be very difficult for it to actually get passed, I'm sure, just because very little does get passed. But I think just from our past experiences, it is a pretty solid chance just because we have been able to successfully pass all of the different rollbacks. So like for our listeners who might not be as familiar with this, SSDP has successfully chipped away at this because before it was that if you had a conviction at any point in your life, you could never get federal student aid. Uh, and now it's successfully been rolled back a couple of times. And now it's currently just if you get a conviction while you're receiving aid, you then lose it. So if, say, you, and you get, also arrest, have, get a marijuana. You also mm-hmm. lose it only for a, for a period of time. So you're not permanently right. barred anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if, say, you get a marijuana conviction for uh, while you're in high school, that doesn't mean that you can't get uh, go straight into college and receive federal aid. It's only if you're currently a college student so i mean it's still terrible it seems crazy that it's going to be a success in a way to regulate marijuana like murder uh (laughs) in the sense that you won't lose your federal aid for it but hopefully we'll uh we'll be able to this time yeah and this one last point being that from a broader drug war perspective and social justice perspective um this is a real this is a real victory because the aid elimination penalty has for obvious reasons traditionally punished students from lower income backgrounds um you know because those are the ones who really rely on federal financial aid to get their um you know secondary education and they don't they may not have alternative means (laughs) of uh, of getting you know their bachelor's degree or whatever education they're seeking and, and then it hurts their chances of employment etc so yeah that is such the crazy thing with this of just that it essentially only uh only hurts low-income people because if you're if you've got rich parents then you're not getting federal aid anyway and so it's right really very specifically letting rich kids off scot-free for this sort of situation right mm-hmm but moving on to our next story, speaking of murder, um, oh, unfortunately, wow. this one is a pretty uh, uh, pretty terrible story. But as a response to the heroin overdose epidemic, which is hitting New Hampshire particularly hard, uh, that state's attorney general, whose name is jo- Joseph Foster, uh, is trying to start charging drug dealers with second degree murder in cases of fatal overdoses that involve heroin or fentanyl. So contrary to what I first assumed when I read the story, he's not actually even pushing for a bill to change the law, uh, but is instead trying to do it by reinterpreting some current laws. And he's just really asking for additional funding uh, so that they can take a, hire a new prosecutor for the drug unit who would then be devoted just to prosecuting overdose cases. And so according to The Guardian, this approach has actually already been adopted in New Jersey and Wisconsin. And there are some other states that are considering legislation to increase penalties for drug dealers who sell to someone who later overdoses. Uh, So this is unfortunately a a crazy story of 
uh, overpenalization and uh, just another kind of drug war tactic to look like they're doing something when in effect, who knows what it'll, if it'll actually help. So I wonder if you know or if you is there is there like a legal standard for knowingly causing someone to overdose or if it's just if you sold someone the heroin and later they overdosed, you're responsible for it no matter what? So I don't know all of the, the legal intricacies here in terms of what the say New Hampshire statutes look like, um, but it does seem to be that it really is just if you sell someone heroin um, and it's not necessarily related to, say, lying about the purity or lacing it with fentanyl without their knowledge or anything that might sound like to make this a little bit more reasonable. Because that was kind of my first thought, too, of, hey, I, I, on one level, it's insane to apply this sort of standard to, you know, heroin sellers or cocaine sellers when you don't apply it to alcohol sellers. Like, you would never penalize or try to convict a liquor store owner for selling someone alcohol if they later overdosed um that actually was the law mm -hmm. uh, until like not that long ago but like dram shop laws are the ones that protect bar owners and tavern owners from liability if their uh customers do become hurt from from alcohol use but that wasn't always the case so we are slowly recovering Mm. from prohibition era um you know, laws like that on the yeah. alcohol front. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. And so it used to be that, oh, okay, but specifically for bars, say, rather than liquor stores. Yeah. It's the idea being that they were actively surveying a super drunk person right. rather than, like, selling them a handle. Right. That, that makes, yeah, you're right. That make, That is a distinction between the two. Hmm. That is interesting, though. I didn't realize that that was uh, a, a recent protection that, that bars got. And yeah, so I mean, just to me, and and I'm curious what your thoughts are on this too, of like, it seems, obviously, this would be completely feasible in a regulated market, uh, because this is what we actually do for, you know, every other product. But it seems okay to me in a general principle of, say, prosecuting someone for lying about what they're selling you, if, say, I know that, like, I sell someone heroin and I put fentanyl in it, but don't tell them and say that it's just heroin because in that case it's misrepresentation and putting them at a higher risk knowingly. But if it is just heroin by itself, you really – you don't have control over the dosage that someone's going to use it in or anything like that. Yeah, I would agree with that logic generally. Um, it does seem like they're just throwing the book at dealers, trying to get them for whatever they can because they're just opposed to people selling uh, these illicit substances. Um, but I also agree that it'd be incredibly difficult to prove in court whether the dealer knew or reasonably should have known, you know, that their product was cut with other things. If, for example, it was cut before they purchased it themselves. Mm-hmm. Good point. Uh, so moving on to our next story, we're going a little international for this one. Um, so this week, the Danish parliament, which is uh, the parliament is their national legislature, just like our Congress, uh, debated a bill that would allow assisted injections. Now, at first, that might sound like the supervised or safe injection facilities that we've talked about uh, recently. But safe injection sites or what they call in Denmark public drug consumption rooms have actually been legal in that country since 2012. So what this new law would do is allow injection drug users to bring a friend or family member into the facility with them to actually assist them with the injection itself. 
Um, that's because a very small but very vulnerable group of injection users may not be able to inject themselves um, either because of withdrawal symptoms that it's causing shaking or because they've been such longtime users that it, they don't have any easily accessible veins anymore. And the logic behind this is that even the most addicted users, um, you know, who are especially vulnerable to potential overdose or health risks, um, still deserve access to one of these drug consumption rooms and all of the health and safety benefits that come with having a site like that to use in. Um, so now, so now the bill would allow local governments to allow a friend or family member to come in with the user and assist them. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's really interesting. And, and I mean, this is such a strange or, you know, kind of novel thing that I, even me as someone who is like a reformer and like through and through have sort of like a visceral reaction of like, oh, that's kind of strange. Or like if someone is that far that far gone that they're not even able to inject themselves like why would you let someone else do it i agree but then it's that's like yeah, that's such that, a it's but it's because i think our our moral judgment can't help but get in the way mm-hmm. when you think of that kind of person who's like yeah oh maybe you shouldn't be using drugs anymore if you can't even like do it yourself but mm-hmm. at the same time we have to remember that obviously these users don't get to the point because they like voluntarily and happily arrived at that place Mm-hmm. Uh. Exactly. And, and it's also that I'm sure currently those people are still, you know, still being not injecting, but being injected by their friend or family member, or whoever it is, just outside of these supervised facilities right, potentially. Or, or public drug consumption rooms. Right. And so I guess they are they are the people who need it most of getting connected to these facilities and having doctors on on hand or on site in order to uh, supervise this and even if they're not the ones giving the injections to be there in case something happens. And so it is still uh, helpful, but exciting in order to, to, to see something that's like this pushing the boundaries so much that it's almost pushing my boundaries, which is awesome. Right. And it's amazing that this doesn't seem like it's really such a controversial mem- measure in Denmark, um, because eight out of their nine political parties in parliament have already officially supported the measure. So that amounts to 142 out of 179 votes. So this bill is actually very likely to pass and take effect this July. Wow, that is incredible. And is very both inspiring that this is possible and disheartening that we are so far behind in the United States. Yeah, way to take the lead, Denmark. Let us know how that goes. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, looking forward to all the studies about this, showing how uh, how well it's working so that we can finally adopt some at least supervised injection facilities here in the U.S. or at least allow states to do it. And so coming back to the United States for our last story this week is that new data out of Tennessee is actually showing that the state's mandatory drug testing of welfare recipients is not turning up very many positive results. Uh, surprise, surprise. But since the law took effect in July of 2014, only 65 out of three out of 39,121 people who applied for this cash assistance program known as Families First uh, tested positive for illegal substances or drugs that they didn't have a prescription for. So if you do the math, this comes out to less than one percent. It's only 0.17 percent of applicants. And all of this testing costed the state a total of twenty three thousand five hundred ninety two dollars. So in order to eliminate those 65 people, it cost over twenty three and a half thousand dollars. And and also to hedge this a little bit is just that there were also one hundred sixteen people who refused to be tested. 
Uh, so that could either have been because they knew that they were going to fail, but also could have been out of privacy or civil liberties concerns. So, but even if you assume that all of them would have tested positive, that's still only 181 people total or less than half a percent of applicants. So this is unfortunate that more states are still trying this tactic. Um, and obviously the logic behind it is very uncompassionate and flawed on principle that you don't deserve access to, you know, food or other social support programs if you are also a substance user. In addition to it being proven to be completely ineffective and a financial waste for the for governments. Yeah. And just the crazy hypocrisy, too, that this is only for this one specific program or, you know, all of the low income people programs rather than, you know, all government assistance, because there's a ridiculous amount of government assistance that goes to, you know, like tax deductions for being a homeowner right. or all of these sorts of tax credits for business people. Right. And But none of those have a drug testing requirement. And I'm sure probably a lot more expensive than these sort of, you know, social safety net sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you may recall that a similar law in Florida um, was actually probably one of the first states to pass a law like this, t- testing uh, welfare recipients. And the Florida law was actually uh, t- taken to court by the ACLU. Um, and in court, it was found to be unconstitutional. Okay. And so, but that didn't preclude Tennessee from then adopting their own. Oh, because that case didn't go to the Supreme Court. Is that right? Yeah. So the law was found to be unconstitutional on grounds of unreasonable search and seizure. Um, but because the law was only appealed to um, the circuit courts and not to the U.S. Supreme Court. It doesn't apply to all states, and Tennessee is in a different uh, circuit than Florida Florida is. So basically any... I mean, there there have been other states, I believe, who have tried to pass laws like this outside of Florida since then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it is in effect in a few others. I don't know off the top of my head, but I don't I don't think Tennessee is alone. Yeah, so I guess so what we... we... Similarly to um, like the gay marriage or same-sex marriage cases that have been being struck down circuit by circuit Mm -hmm. i think something like that would have to happen Mm -hmm. um in this case as well okay so what we really need is for one of these cases to eventually make it to the supreme court and have them rule that it's an unreasonable search and seizure and then that'll actually prevent more states from doing this instead of being on the kind of weird ad hoc sort of basis yeah that seems to be you know if we want to cut it off at the stem or a nip mm. it in the bud is the more common <laughs> term. <laughs> I like the stem one, though, because, you know, it's lower. It makes more sense. <laughs> Perfect. So now do we want to move on into uh, the quick hits? Yeah, so that takes us to our quick hits. And we only have two little quick hits today. The first the um, is a story about federal agents uh, through the FBI arresting 49 prison guards in prison officers in Georgia for corruption, including for taking bribes and trafficking drugs into their correctional facilities. Wow. <laughs> just 49 more bad apples. Mm-hmm. Yep, just 49 of them. Not at I'm all sure, a I'm culture. Sure they were the last. Exactly. This is not at all a culture of 
uh, abuse of authority and mm-hmm. such. Not systemic one bit. No. <laughs> and our, our next quick hit is a, a positive one, is that marijuana legalization is moving forward in Vermont. Hooray! Yay, Vermont! <laughs> And so their state Senate committee on judiciary uh, approved their legalization bill, uh, which is adult use marijuana legalization, not just medical, um, on a four to one vote. And so after uh, this, it now moves on to the Senate committee on finance for further debate. And then once it passes the uh, passes there, hopefully it'll move on to the full Senate. And if it gets approved by the Senate and then also passes the Vermont House and gets signed by the governor, who is supportive, uh, then Vermont will be the first state in the entire country to pass recreational marijuana legalization through the legislature. So good luck, Vermont. Awesome work, activists, and uh, keep up the good work. Woo! Go, Vermont! Mm-hmm. Um, and now moving on to our weekly forecast. Uh, my forecast this week is not so much an event that's coming up, but um, an anniversary of an event in the past that I'm going to use as a parable for why we are fighting to end the war on drugs. Um, so this Sunday, February 14th, is the 87th anniversary of the Valentine's Day Massacre. So for those who aren't familiar, the Valentine's Day Massacre was a notorious murder of seven mob members in broad daylight during the Prohibition era. The shooting was a result of gang wars between the Irish North Side Gang and the Italian South Side Gang led by Al Capone um, in Chicago um, while they were struggling for power between the two gangs. So both gangs, of course, came to power by bootlegging liquor when legal businesses at the time were prohibited from importing, manufacturing, or selling alcohol. And without a legal system in place to regulate and resolve competition between the two importers, (laughs) um, such as what we see now in the legal alcohol industry, criminal enterprises instead had to rely on violence and intimidation. Uh, This is a perfect parallel with the system we're seeing now um, of the in the illicit drug trade. So a little a little something to think about lawmakers who are listening to our show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so uh, this next one is for all of the SSDP alumni in our audience, uh, which is also a uh, pretty huge contingent along with all of the lawmakers that I know are listening. <laughs> and so um, for this coming up uh, or right now, we actually just started the first ever elections for the Alumni Association. Uh, So right now we are just in the nominations phase. Uh, So if you're interested in serving as an officer for one of the Alumni Association's regional boards, or if you know someone that you think would be great, uh, you can nominate them using a link that you should have gotten in an email. Uh, So nominations close this Friday, February 19th. And then after that, there's going to be some time for nominees to send out their information and people to consider each of them. And then voting will begin in March. So if you want to participate but aren't yet in the Alumni Association, it's not too late to join. So you can learn more at ssdp.org alumni. So that's all for this week's segment of weekly news and forecast. As always, we have our eye on the biggest news stories and upcoming events and hearings that we think you should know about. But there's so much going on these days in the world of drug policy reform that we may not catch it all. If you have a story or event coming up that you'd like us to know about, please hit us up on Twitter or Facebook at This Week in Drugs um, or email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. See you next week. (laughs) 
now it's time for our drug of the month, which for February is heroin, also known by its scientific name, diamorphine or sometimes diacetylmorphine. This week, I'll be diving into the science of this almost universally vilified drug, how it interacts with the body, its immediate and long-term effects, and some of its recreational and medical uses. As we explained in the introduction and is probably familiar to most people, the most common route of administration for heroin is injection, although it can also be snorted or smoked and in medical settings is either done by IV or administered in pill form. The reason that injection is so popular, both recreationally and medicinally, is bioavailability, or the proportion of an administered dose of a drug that reaches your bloodstream unchanged. By definition, a drug that's injected intravenously has 100% bioavailability, since it's going straight into your bloodstream. In comparison, snorting heroin only has about 45% bioavailability, and taking it orally is only about 35%. For addicts and other regular users, cost is a really big factor, so injecting's bioavailability of 100% gives more bang for the buck since it's much more efficient, and that's kind of why it's preferred. Although snorting and smoking also both affect the body quite quickly, but they differ in how intense they are and how long they last. So while most people do inject, some still prefer snorting or smoking despite them being less efficient. For medical uses, diamorphine is often prescribed in pill form since that does not come with an immediate rush of euphoria, and instead spreads its effect over a longer period of time, making it more effective for pain management and less likely to lead to addiction. Depending on the route of administration, heroin interacts with the body in different ways. When taken orally, and by that I mean ingested rather than smoked, diamorphine goes through a process called, called deacetylation, which is just the removal of acetyl groups. So since all heroin is is morphine with two acetyl groups, which is why uh, it's called diacetylmorphine, this means that your body strips off these two acetyl groups, transforming the heroin into morphine, which then enters the bloodstream. So when taken orally, heroin is really just a prodrug, meaning a drug that's then used to create another drug, for morphine. But the reason it's used instead is because it's much more bioavailable. The concentration of morphine in your blood is after ingesting heroin orally is about twice the concentration as when injecting oral morphine. In contrast, when injected, heroin skips the first pass metabolism, allowing it to rapidly cross the blood-brain barrier, where it then goes through deacetylation, turning into... 6 monoacetylmorphine and then into morphine itself. These bind with mu opioid receptors, which cause heroin's characteristic effects. This is a really quick process with users feeling effects within minutes. And the biological half-life of heroin is only two to three minutes long, while some of its effects are still felt for four to even five or six hours afterwards. Heroin does have a few major effects on the body, the most notable of which is intense euphoria, which is what mo most recreational users are seeking when they consume it. It also dulls pain and anxiety, causing users to feel very relaxed, often leading to what's known as the nod, where users are alternately alert and drowsy as if they're nodding off to sleep. Breathing slows down and muscles are weaker than they normally be, and users will often also get dry mouth and a warm flushed feeling on their skin. As is well known, heroin comes with a very high risk of fatal overdose, which are usually caused by the body's respiratory system shutting down. This is caused in part by the pharmacology of heroin, since it's more potent than other drugs like morphine, but it's also caused by prohibition. People who consume street heroin are unlikely to know the purity of the drug, as it's almost always cut with other things in order for the sellers to make more money, often being cut at each stage of the supply chain, making it even harder to know what's really in it. Sometimes heroin is even cut with other more potent opioids like fentanyl, which can cause even more even experienced users to overdose. 
Also, the risk of overdose is greatly increased when heroin is combined with alcohol, which is a depressant. People who use heroin frequently will quickly build up a tolerance, which is much more pronounced than many other recreational drugs. A first-timer may only use a 10 or 20 milligram dose, while a daily user might consume hundreds of milligrams per day. This amplifies the risk of overdose, as someone who goes off heroin for a while will lose their tolerance, making it very dangerous for them to use the same amount that they were previously used to using safely. Along with tolerance comes a high risk of dependence, with NIDA estimating that 23% of people who try heroin will become addicted. Of course, as we've discussed in other episodes, there are also a lot of environmentals at play in addiction, and so it should not be oversimplified into a mere chemical reaction. It's also important to note that this means 77% of people who try heroin will not become addicted, contrary to fear-mongering claims that everyone who tries it will immediately be turned into an addict for the rest of their lives. But if someone does become dependent, trying to quit will lead to intense withdrawals, which, while not as dangerous as the potentially fatal alcohol withdrawals, can make quitting incredibly difficult. Some symptoms of heroin withdrawal include sweating, anxiety, depression, insomnia, severe muscle and bone aches, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, cramps, and fever, to name only a few. While difficult to get through, withdrawal symptoms do typically subside within about a week, but they can last for two or even three weeks in certain cases. And with this long potential list of side effects, high potential for abuse, and demonization in the media, it may surprise our listeners, especially our American listeners, that heroin has many recognized medical uses as well. While U.S. doctors tend to perform mor- prefer morphine, U.K. doctors prescribe diamorphine as an analgesic, cough suppressant, and an anti-diarrheal. Many countries like the U.K. and Switzerland also have heroin maintenance programs, where people trying to wean themselves off of recreational heroin can get government-tested or even government-produced heroin, administered under medical supervision to help lessen withdrawal symptoms. And while there's obviously a lot more to heroin than we can fit in this segment, I hope that it helped clear up some misconceptions and add a bit of scientific understanding to this drug that is so often misunderstood. So tune in next week to hear Rochelle give a lesson on the history of heroin. For today's episode, we'll be discussing a comprehensive package of harm reduction legislation introduced in Maryland by Delegate Dan Morheim, with Delegate Dan Morheim himself, a member of Maryland's General Assembly for 22 years and a physician for more than 30 years. Thank you so much, Dan, for coming on. Great to be with you. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit more about this uh, comprehensive harm reduction package that you've introduced. It consists of four bills. And what, what, do each bill, what does each bill do? Well, let me start by saying this really uh, is a growth of my, uh, comes out of my being an emergency medicine physician. Yeah. And I see so much in the emergency room. Everybody has a different perspective on this issue. Uh, I worked at, for many years at a big suburban hospital in the last 15, 16 years at a large urban trauma center in the middle of Baltimore. So that's a perspective mm-hmm. that has given me the opportunity to see the carnage of the war on drugs, talk to thousands of addicts, uh, crime victims, uh, drug dealers, and all kinds of folks. There are other patients in the emergency room, of course, as well. But it's certainly given me a, a perspective. And then I've been in the legislature for a long time. I'm also on the faculty at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. So I I get to combine those three things. And, you know, I think the first thing, 
which more and more people are coming around to, not just people on the cutting edge, but mainstream America, is recognizing that the war on drugs isn't working at all. Not only is it not working, it's destructive uh, of the very goals that it seems to want to achieve. The goals would be reduce the rate of drug addiction and, and reduce crime and violence. And after 50 plus years, just the opposite is what is the case. Jam prisons, disease, uh, people's lives ruined, not only the substance abusers, but innocent victims of the substance abusers, uh, damage to communities, higher costs that all of us are paying, taxpayers are paying, health insurance costs, the criminal justice system, and an international drug trade where billions of dollars is ultimately being sent overseas to groups that basically want to harm the United States. So it, it makes no sense on any level. And as a state legislator, you know, I, I came up with these bills. So would you like to hear what these bills are? Yeah. And before we continue, I just want to say, I just want to pause and say thank you so much for articulating all these incredible reasons that we really have to change our approach to drug policy, because that's really the message that Sam and, Sam and I try to get across in every one of these episodes and everything we do with this podcast um, is illuminate the harms of the current war on drugs, but it's just so incredibly powerful to hear that from an elected official and lawmaker, too. Um, well, these aren't abstractions for me, because I take care of these folks, and I see exactly what the damage is. I mean, uh, on November 10th, I was on duty in the ER, and there was a gunshot wound death of a young man who was trying to build a little fence to keep the dealers out of his yard. Mm -hmm. uh, another shift not long ago, I had a fellow chief complaint said leg pain, and he had a big abscess on his inner thigh, the size somewhere between a grapefruit and a cantaloupe, and to because he was shooting with 30 needles into his leg to try to find a vein after having scarred up all his other veins. Right. And then I talked to people and say, where do you get the money? How much does it cost? And it's 50 bucks a day times 365 days a year. It's estimated there are about 20,000 hardcore addicts in the Baltimore metro region. You do the math, that comes to almost $400 million a year just spent on buying uh, illegal drugs. So it, it doesn't count all the other costs. And you add in, and we're just one, you know, medium sized city. You add up all the rest of the United States, it, it's billions and billions of dollars. So it doesn't make sense from a point of view of taking care of the substance abusers that are, you know, we now are recognizing or throughout society, not just in certain areas. And it doesn't make any mm -hmm. fiscal sense. If you're a hard hearted conservative that wants to save money, you got to end the war on drugs. Absolutely. And that's so important, as Rochelle said, of just having that come from someone who has your perspective as a physician and a legislator, because as much as it could be correct when Rochelle and I say it, we just don't have the same sort of uh, credibility of being able to say, hey, I've been working with these people for decades and seeing how the war on drugs has affected our community. And, and this is how we can fix it. Um, and so speaking of fixes, if we could dive into uh, these four bills that you've uh, introduced, if you maybe want to just give a quick uh, summary of, of each of them and how they work together. And uh, this legislation just didn't spring from, from me. It was a process working with a lot of different people, getting a lot of perspectives mm -hmm. and trying to figure it out. So the first bill would be to decriminalize uh, possession of small amounts of drugs. We've done that in Maryland for marijuana, but this would apply to all drugs. It doesn't legalize drugs, and it doesn't get rid of the penalties for dealing drugs, but it turns the uh, minor, small possession amount into a civil offense, and then there's a graduated civil offense schedule. Um, you know, we're not, none of us here for drug use or substance abuse. So 
this would give people an effect a ticket and a fine, and then it goes up, ramps up from there. But it enables uh, people to get pushed into drug treatment early and not have a blot on their record that then precludes them from getting education, housing, employment for the rest of their lives. It's a fork in the road when people get a civil offense or get arrested the first time for possession of a small amount of drugs. And either we get them, shove them in more into a therapeutic environment without ruining their lives, or we shove them into the criminal justice uh, system, which we've been arresting addicts for years, and that clearly hasn't worked. So that's one bill. A uh, second bill would be, uh, has to do with our hospital system. So uh, substance abusers all end up in the emergency room sooner or later. That's just the way it is. They end up there a lot. So do other people, but they all end up there sooner or later. And despite the good system that we have at the hospital that I work, in the end, basically we give people referrals, a bunch of phone numbers. That's hard enough for, you know, non-abusers, substance abusers to follow up with the the kinds of, you know, you need to follow up requests that we make. So this would require hospitals to have available in person or on call at all times, a actual addiction treatment counselor. And further, they would have to have a defined way to admit people and get them into care, not just give them a list of uh, available services. I mean, if you came into the emergency room with a heart attack, I don't give you a bunch of phone numbers for cardiac care units and suggest that you go find one. <laughs> you know, I make the arrangements one way or another. When we discharge patients to nursing homes, we just don't give them a bunch of phone numbers and shove them out, some old person out the door on, in a wheelchair and then take the wheelchair back and say, well, we gave you a bunch of phone numbers for a nursing home. Go, go get one. We don't do that. And there's no reason we should do that for the addiction and behavioral health disorders, too. The other thing the bill does is Maryland is unique. It has a rate-regulated hospital system, so it uh, pushes the uh, state agency that regulates hospitals and the hospitals to find the common-sense way to make this be cost-effective. And I think everybody understands that if you have substance abusers frequenting emergency rooms and hospitals, it, it's much better all around if uh, they didn't do that. We're all paying for it directly or indirectly one way or another. So it's actually, I think numbers are like $1 of treatment by 7 to $12 of savings. So it's very cost effective. And the other reason to focus on hospitals, not only because substance abusers end up there sooner or later, hospitals are open 24-7, 365. They're safety and security systems. There's no NIMBY issue, no not-in-my-backyard issues, which come up when treatment clinics try to open up. Everybody knows where hospitals are. They're well lit. They're highly regulated. They're on bus routes. So there's a lot of reasons why hospitals should be uh, a focus of treatment uh, and, and getting people in treatment at need. So that's the second bill. The third bill is safe consumption facilities. And that, of course, has been pretty well proven data in other countries. Uh, and we have this, it's not new to some of us, but it's new to a lot of America that there are overdose deaths. It's, um, you know, the overdose death issue from narcotics to me is the tip of an iceberg that's been around for 50 years, but nonetheless, people are, kept, you know, unfortunately becoming more aware of it than they were before. But the way narcotic overdose deaths happen is the, the drug turns off the breathing center in the brain. And when you stop breathing, you've got about a minute or two till you get serious brain damage and about three or four minutes till you die. So someone has to be there to administer naloxone or Narcan, and, which is a wonder drug that causes people to recover from a narcotic overdose. 
But typically, substance abusers are not in a place where they can be found. They're taking their drugs in back alleys, bathrooms, their own, alone in their home or apartment, sometimes with other people around who are also impaired. So there's nobody there to actually do the rescue. Safe consumption facilities allow people to bring in their drugs to a set location uh, under the bill that would be regulated and have to meet various standards of care and training of personnel. They could consume their drugs there, and it would be a safe environment. It would be an opportunity for needle exchange, an opportunity to get uh, people into a therapeutic uh, environment uh, and maybe get them counseling. And if they do overdose, you've got a rescuer present immediately. And the number of overdose deaths in safe consumption facilities in the rest of the world is essentially zero. Maybe there's one or two, but it's essentially zero. We're we have a thousand overdose deaths in Maryland in you know, the last couple of years. So it's it's really the one of the best ways to save lives and then and at the same time get people into a relationship with some with the, with counseling or therapy or whatever they need. And the last bill is um, called polymorphone assisted care. This would be a pilot program for the most hardcore addicts, people who have failed everything. They failed methadone, suboxone, vivitrol, uh, 12-step, uh, Narcotics Anonymous, faith-based, whatever it is, they have failed it. And these, this is really a harm reduction bill because this hardcore group of people is out on the street committing crime, stealing, um, finding, you know, getting new people hooked on drugs so they can make money off uh, the purchases that they sell. And uh, really what it does is say, in effect, we're going to provide you with the narcotics. Uh, again, it may be something where I don't want people to think of it's like just the giving up on folks. It actually gets them into a therapeutic environment. But at the very least, it protects us from you know, legitimate society, so to speak, from the antisocial behaviors of these folks which, who have been running rampant. This is, again, a failure of the war on drugs. If the war on drugs was working, we wouldn't have all that crime out there. And this gets people into that. This would be a pilot program, uh, highly studied, uh, course corrections in the middle. It's worked in other parts of the world. Um, and so uh, those are the four bills. I, I think the hospital one, my colleagues, they kind of get the others. There's a spectrum of opinion ranging from uh, completely crazy to why hasn't this been done before. Uh, certainly they'll be seen as controversial. But as I think I'm the first legislator to actually introduce a package like this, uh, it will provoke a discussion. And I don't, certainly don't have all the answers, but it's clear that what we've been doing isn't working. And these... Uh, efforts here are to um, you know, bring about a, a robust, hopefully civil discussion where we all come together from our different perspectives and address this issue, which fundamentally is eroding you know, society in the United States, all, all, all over in every you know, city and town in the country. Sorry for the long answer, but that is those are the four bills. I should say, too, I actually do work on other issues. Uh, you know, you have to do that, uh, but but this is one that, because of my background, I feel very comfortable uh, trying to explain to folks. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for that, for those very thorough answers and a lot of background information on why these particular measures are priorities for for someone involved in in harm reduction in Baltimore in particular. Um, so you talked a little bit about how the the hospital emergency access to treatment bill being one where your colleagues can see 
the rationale behind it. They can see, you know, the direct uh, positive effects of it. Have you been able to build up a coalition or uh, co-sponsors around this bill yet? I know that you had, um, you know, some representatives from law enforcement at your press conference where you announced these bills. Um, who are the um, who are the parties in favor of them and who are the ones that still need convincing or who are more skeptical of these um, measures? Well, it's, it's a challenge to categorize mm -hmm. either by party or, or, or anything else because some, I'm, I've often been surprised. For example, in Maryland, we did pass a medical cannabis law after struggling through it for a number of years. I'm a Democrat, and some of the Democrats were much more resistant than the Republicans. In fact, it was Republicans who had first introduced medical cannabis legislation in Maryland before I did. So I, I can't quite categorize everybody on this one. Fortunately, we do have support from law enforcement in terms of uh, law enforcement against prohibition leap. We have some distinguished academic people from the University of Maryland and from the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health uh, working on this issue. I always have to say, they don't represent the University of Maryland or the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg mm -hmm. School of Public Health, but they are academics. Uh, I believe that as we proceed, we ought to be as scientifically grounded as possible, as data-driven as possible. These are serious issues, and we need to approach them uh, seriously. In terms of co-sponsors, the hospital bill does have some co-sponsors. I will probably seek a few on the others, but I think my colleagues, uh, you know, sense this is being politically risky. And it is to a degree. And so I think they'll want, and I think it's fair, to you know, wait for the bill hearing, see who shows up, what, what are the pros and cons, uh, and then make decisions. This, by the way, doesn't substitute for you know, a big investment in treatment anyways. Um, mm -hmm. Different kinds of substance abusers, some need long-term treat, long treatment, months and months or years. Uh, going to you know sometimes a uh, you know substance abuse treatment center in the in the country and you know, really straighten out their lives. It depends on the person. Others may benefit uh, fairly immediately from some outpatient treatment. Depends on the person and the circumstance. And one of the things I've observed over the years is that comp competent, trained addictions counselors are key. Not it's not one size fits all for treatment. Different things work for different people at different times. Sometimes people are in treatment, they do well for a while, then they fail, then you try something else. But I, I see it just like treating high blood pressure, which I have occasion to do in the emergency room. There's high blood pressure crises, which demand some kinds of medicines. There's underlying causes that are completely different. Um, there's many different choices of medicine. Some work, some don't. I may try to make very rational decisions about why I would try one medicine in a 65-year-old African-American male and I would do a completely different approach if it was a 35-year-old female. You know, these are, that's, this is clinical medicine. And you know, sometimes people aren't aware that there are actually some pretty challenging decisions to be made in regular medicine. And it's just the same kinds of decisions that should be made here. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just, so just again, I want to thank you for introducing these, the, this package of bills because, as, as you said in one of your earlier answers there, this really hasn't been done before. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, I think this is the first uh, bill that would decriminalize possession of all drugs uh, introduced in any state legislature. Um, I'm not sure if it's it's either the first or one of the very first about uh, safe injection facilities, which is incredible. Um 
So thank you for for really leading the way on this. And um, as Rochelle said earlier, I believe, uh, but only one country in the world so far has decriminalized all drugs, and that's in, in Portugal. And the results of their experiments so far have been overwhelmingly positive. But what would you say to skeptics or, or to start with? I'm curious of how much uh, from the Portugal legislation and the Portugal experience you drew from for this bill, uh, if this was if that really was an inspiration here, um, and, and what kind of say similarities and differences your bill would have. But then also, what would you say to skeptics who say maybe that won't work in America because our society is different, whether it's our values or demographics or whatever reason, or that one country is too small a sample size to really know what the effects are going to be. Well, I think you, you take data wherever you can get it. And Portugal's experience, and it's been reviewed by the Cato Institute, which is one of the more conservative think tanks uh, in the United States. And th their analysis is that uh, all the terrible things that might have been predicted by taking the steps that Portugal do, did, did they, those, those terrible things didn't happen. Now, of course, it's a different culture, and it's a different country, and there's different states. What How you might approach this in North Dakota or California or mm -hmm. Texas or Maryland is going to be different as well. So the sure. bill is is built on, when we actually read the bill, really with a Maryland perspective in mind. But I think the principles are clearly applicable uh, to a great degree all over. One other thing, just to go back to what uh, Rochelle was saying about uh, my colleagues. You know, legislate, I've been in legislature a long time. Legislators respond to constituents. And I think everybody who's interested in this issue, preferably from the perspective that I think the three of us and others share, need to you know, communicate with their legislators. When they see articles on this in the press, they need to comment on those you know, online comment places. They need to uh, write letters to the editor saying, I think this is a really good idea, or maybe even hear some of my concerns. Could these be addressed? I mean, to get a robust civil discussion going is quite a challenge. But you know, we've seen things over the years uh, turn around that seemed impossible at the time, and now they're commonplace normative. Can I give you an example? Back in 1995, <laughs> when, I, when I first got elected, we had a bill that was as heavily lobbied as any, any bill uh, that I've seen since. Uh, as heavily lobbied and emotional as things like the death penalty or marriage equality. Um, and we were told that if we pass this bill, we'd cause great economic havoc in the state um, there would be calamity. What that bill was was to ban smoking in restaurants. And, you know, that's what we were told by Maryland is a state that has a lot of uh, borders near other states. It's not like California, which is just kind of a big country unto itself. So we were told everybody will go eat in restaurants out of state. The tax base will go away. There won't be any summer jobs that many of us, including me, worked in the hospitality industry. You know, we passed it and... Um, Business went up. It took 10 years to ban smoking in bars. And again, we were told it would be you know, a disaster for bars. In fact, business went up. In this state, and I think in a lot of places now, you can't reintroduce a bill that says there's going to be smoking in all public places. It's just not going to work. And as an ER doctor, I'm very sensitive to um, safety bills like um, uh, putting kids in safety seats. Uh, that's basically eliminated those kinds of accidents or injuries. But there were fights over that cost too much, how, how are people going to get these things, you're interfering with my rights, and so on. But we're, we're not going to you know, go backwards on those. And then, of course, some more modern, the, the medical cannabis revolution that's really in, what, 30-plus states now passed something, 
And that seemed unpredictable five years ago. So I think this issue will also um, go through its cycle of debate and skepticism and concern. And, and I think everybody who's interested in this should be aware and uh, open to modifications. You know, so uh, I don't have all the answers. I don't think anybody does, but you want to start. So this goes back to something you've alluded to previously that, um, you know, heroin use throughout Baltimore City isn't a new phenomenon. This has been occurring for generations. Is there any are there any recent developments or events that made you feel like right now this year was the time to be introducing these really revolutionary groundbreaking Bills? Is it because of the progress we've made on cannabis policy in Maryland, or is it because you've seen now the pro- the problem that has always been there of heroin use become really an epidemic that's getting out of hand, or or maybe a combination thereof, or is it something else entirely that made you think the time was right now to begin the conversation? I think that the awareness that the war on drugs has failed has become commonly accepted. Uh, the, the medical cannabis I see is a completely different issue. I see that as a therapy. And I think, I know, I think I got this quote from somebody, Rochelle, who you were working with, but it was uh, in, regard, in regards to medical cannabis. In the war on drugs, can we at least start by getting the sick and the dying off the battlefield? I see that completely in a medical concept. And every day I read new articles about scientific articles about how medical cannabis can help things. There's, I think, a whole new pharmacology that's going to appear, roll out over the next 5, 10, 20 years in a very rational and scientific way. Frankly and sadly, I think part of what's changed on the war on drugs issue is that uh, suburban kids were beginning to die. And it's been in the inner city for a long time, and I've seen that. And I've written about the failure of the war on drugs um, one way or another for about 20 years. But I wrote an op-ed after the uh, unrest in Baltimore in the spring, and I pointed out how the uh, drug wars were really at the root of a lot of the problem. And I got an overwhelming response. I've written op-eds before, and you get a nice response. But this one was overwhelming, and it was overwhelmingly that, um, you're right, the war on drugs has failed. What do you want to do about it? And that was a real shift. I mean, I got hundreds of responses. And when I would go to the gym or the supermarket or be in a restaurant, people would come up and say, that was really important. What's the next step? And so that got me thinking uh, further. There's some other efforts in Maryland by other entities within state government. I think they're um, good efforts to be respected. And so those got a lot of attention as well. I don't think they were comprehensive enough, but at least they were moving in the right direction, prompted largely by uh, the increase in, in heroin uh, and uh, narcotic overdose deaths, which is a separate topic, how that came about. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think it's not really fully uh, been explained, but I'll, you know, that's another topic. But, but it did shift a lot of people. However you get there, yes, it's unfortunate it's taken this to address the problem. It's been around for 30, 40, 50 years and the Jim Crow effects of the war on drugs. But here we are. You have to run with what you got when you got it. Mm-hmm. And I and I do really love that quote that you said about getting the, the sick and the dying off of the, the battlefield of the war on drugs, because I think that is a really good first priority in that. As our listeners know, I I talk about it all the time that I'm such a huge fan of decriminalization and think that it makes so much sense and is a, a great next step in ending the war on drugs. But something else that I think is really important to think about, too, and to, to extend that analogy a bit more, is then what do we do about the POWs? 
And so and people will get left behind after the war is over. Uh, so we actually uh, took some questions on Reddit uh, from some of our listeners there. And so one of the users asked, uh, his name is Vern Million uh, or her. Uh, username and uh, so that that this person asked, uh, what about the people who have already been convicted of drug charges? Uh, what would be the process for them? So, would your decriminalization bill do anything for people who have existing convictions, whether they're currently serving their sentences or wanting to get their records expunged down the road? The the bill itself does not do that, but there's other legislation already operative in Maryland that would allow for those uh, things to happen. But you have to pass a, a decriminalization bill for all drugs first before you can go back and, and fix uh, uh, the previous thing. In 99% of the drug arrests in the state are by the state government, not by the federal government. So this mm-hmm. is a state-by-state state issue. And clearly some states have had uh, gone much farther than my state in this regard, and others are way behind. So it's a state-by-state state issue. I certainly am totally sympathetic that people should not be in jail for a crime that they committed last year that is not a crime this year. And uh, I think everybody's aware of that. I wish, you know, a lot of things were different or could be changed at, at mm-hmm. Bill or the, the three of us and a few others could make all these decisions. The bills that I put in are generally perceived as, you know, pretty, uh, you know, almost radical, I think. So, uh, but I'm also trying to stay within the realm of at least a degree of political possibility. So you can't sacrifice the good for the perfect or get all the things that you and I or others may want to have done in one bill or at one time. But if uh, we can get a few of these things going, then I think uh, we can go back later and try and fix stuff. That's not very satisfying for the person in jail. I get it. And if somebody wants to figure out a better political calculus than I have, they're welcome to try. But that's how I see it. I wish it were different, but that's how I see it. My... My next question is has to do in particular with the um, safe injection sites proposal, the supervised consumption. Um, So you mentioned that that the majority of these, you know, drug arrests in the state are by state government and that the federal government doesn't really have much of a hands on enforcement uh, role in a lot of in a vast majority of these arrests. But I was wondering what. Um, relationship would there be between federal law and a, and a state allowing something like a supervised injection site? I don't know any of the legal implications around that. Um, are, are there any? Is there any anything the federal government might, you know, hesitate to let you let the state proceed with something like that? I'm sure there are uh, such kinds of conflicts. Um, but I'm just a country doctor here trying to do some good. Uh-huh. I don't wor- want to worry about what the federal government may or may not do. Okay. There's no, I just don't see any upside in me or anybody interested in this issue doing it. To put in the bill if it passes, and there are there is language in the legislation that says that the state cannot prosecute people or come into a safe consumption facility and arrest folks if that's where they are. There are those protections, uh, but I don't control what the federal government does. But, you know, we've seen that all over the place on the, the cannabis issue. It's still illegal at the federal level, and yet there's programs uh, going on in Colorado, Washington, Oregon, and different kinds of medical cannabis programs all over the United States, some operative, some soon to be operative. So um, I think states are the laboratories. This is where the action is. And I think if more, more states take on a topic like this, the federal government will have to be 
uh, dragged along. Excellent. And so uh, I, I think I do definitely agree there myself, just because, uh, you know, medical marijuana programs are in very, very clear violation of federal law, but they've been allowed to exist. So I do hope that uh, maybe we'd end up with the same sort of situation with something like a safe injection facility. Although, as myself, not being a lawyer, I don't really know all of the implications there, but that might be something interesting for us to, to look at for a, uh, for a future show. Um, but, you know, this mm-hmm. is a marathon, not a sprint. And we've seen mm-hmm. things get to a tipping point, uh, as I tried to describe with other legislation. And then everybody says, what was the big fuss about? Um, we went through that in this state with uh, the marriage equality issue. I mean, that's still not happening in a lot of states, and there's people protesting. But in Maryland, uh, it did pass. It was actually taken to referendum. It passed overwhelmingly. And, you know, now that's not a topic of discussion. But five years ago, it seemed impossible and was incredibly heated. Uh, and now it's pretty much over. Not that everybody's happy with that decision that the voters made, but that's the way it is. And um, we've moved on. So I, I think the same things can happen here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And speaking of getting all of the uh, the folks who are still a little bit hesitant to support this sort of reform on board, I feel like sometimes what ends up being the sticking point for a lot of people is that for some reason, whether it's uh, the decriminalization of all drugs, whether it's marijuana legalization, whether it's any of these different sorts of reforms, they don't see it as a change in necessarily the uh, the policy, but they see it as an endorsement of drug use for some reason, even though it's very clearly not. Um, but what would you say to, say, another legislator or a concerned parent or really anyone who is hesitant to support this sort of bill be- just because they're against drug use itself? So what would uh, what's the reason that someone who is against drugs would want to support decriminalization or safe injection facilities? Well, first of all, I say to them, I totally get it. I understand that. I, I'm a parent. I certainly am not advocating for substance abuse or people taking drugs. And, that, and I've seen that. Mm-hmm the damage uh, that's been done. Uh, And these are ideas, the ones that I'm proposing are not ones that even I necessarily would have supported a decade or 15 years ago. But when you read, when you study the issue carefully and you look at the data, you've you've got to start believing some of the facts. It's clear that what we are doing isn't working and to the extent that we have information. And I'm a pretty data-driven person. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of scientifically oriented and I try to have background information. And for example, on medical cannabis, studies show that in states that have medical cannabis programs, adolescent use stays the same or decreases. I mean, that's in the American Journal of Public Health. Uh, show their studies, and it, the big one was in the Journal of the American Medical Association, not, not the Cheech and Chong Hippie Times here, the you know, not High Times Magazine, JAMA, the most conservative journal in the United States, that opioid deaths are down 25% in states that have medical cannabis programs. And there are a number of other studies like that and the health studies of medical cannabis. So I show, shared those with my colleagues. These are peer-reviewed published journals. Uh, you know, these are, these are legitimate entities. And, and eventually they began to think, yeah, I guess that's the case. Uh, and I think that's how we have to argue it and why I'm so glad that we've got some academic institutions willing to help with these issues because I don't know, I'm not gonna claim I know how all this is gonna turn out. The other thing is just personal from talking to addicts, talking to substance abusers. You know, I, I might be sowing somebody's laceration and, and they don't know I'm a politician. They don't know I'm in office. I'm just the doc. And I say, tell me about your life. How did this get started? What were the first things that happened? I mean, when did you start using drugs and why? And there are two or three themes that show up each time. One, most of them had really terrible lives. 
I mean, just just terrible home lives. And, and uh, you know, I sometimes think to myself privately, gosh, if I had that life, I might be looking for escapes too. Mm -hmm. We all have stress in our lives and problems, but hopefully, you know, we're not shooting heroin for, to relieve that. There may be other things that uh, we can do. And secondly, they often got introduced to it by another person who's uh, a substance abuser, or let's say a heroin addict in this case, because it's the pyramid scheme of heroin addiction. I mean, the, the motivation of a heroin addict to get the money, which is substantial, 50 bucks a day, give or take, is to get other people addicted, your five or six acquaintances, so that you can make the marginal difference on the, what they buy from you, which is how you got started. And, you know, you're, you're, you're the difference is what, what you use for yourself. But then there's somebody further up the chain, and so it goes. So there's a strong motivation for addicts to, to recruit other addicts. And when you take some of the money out of it or you get people into a therapeutic program, that motivation goes away. So I actually think there's a very rational argument to say that this would decrease drug use. These, these strategies, these bills would decrease drug use, not, not increase it. Also, it's very difficult to get the addicted population, you know, into, uh, you know, directed health care for this purpose. As I said, they come to the emergency room for a variety of other things. But if you've got an addictions counselor there, if you have a safe consumption facility where there's addiction counselors present, where the resources are there, not only for addiction treatment, but for their other behavior health or somatic problems, uh, and maybe to sign them up for Medicaid or whatever the health insurance programs are in your state or region, those are all ways to start funneling people into a, a better series of choices. And all, all these answers really remind me of uh, something that the executive director of the Harm Reduction Action Center here in Denver um, often says. So Lisa Rayville is, was one of my first, um, you know, educators and mentors in this space. And she always um, says that the real gateway to drug use is often trauma, which reflects what you've said about how the difficulties in a lot of these users' past lives um, and the other thing, the, the other mantra that she often repeats is that we have to meet pe people where they're at. So, you know, sometimes cold turkey quitting won't work for a lot of people and you have to meet them where they are at to be able to um, help them in the ways that they are able to receive help. Um, and so this has been an incredibly illuminating and educational uh, discussion and we always wrap up um, our roundtable discussions with a call to action since educating people is not quite as useful if they're not also using that knowledge to improve their communities and making a positive change in the world. So you've already given us a lot of good ideas about how to reach out to legislators and talk to our communities but if you could have listeners do just one thing right now what would you ask them to do? I think find their best and most comfortable talking points where they were they're clearly speaking from the heart and the head um, and and also recognize that it takes time for folks legislators or anybody to absorb these concepts and and process them so to be persistent but never be you know there's no reason to be rude or to be difficult when dealing with folks you know people move along at their own pace we can try to accelerate that pace but it's always good to be polite and civil uh, but repeat communication is the key very few people are going to respond to any of this hearing at once. They need to hear it over and over again because their lives march on. And sometimes things that didn't make sense at a certain point in life uh, make sense at another point in life because you've had some different experiences or you know somebody who 
has a problem that you didn't know had a problem before. And now you're thinking, gosh, I, I really should start you know, being more serious about this. Right. That is so perfect. And I really hope that all of our listeners take that to heart and start uh, talking about everyone in their communities and their legislators about these important issues. And so thank you again so much, both for coming on and speaking with us today and for introducing these bills in the first place. I know Rochelle and I are both really looking forward to seeing uh, how the debate goes in the Maryland legislature. And uh, we'll definitely be continuing this as it uh, continues to go on. It will be tough, but it'll be exciting. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And so thank you again so much for coming on. And uh, for all of our listeners, again, this has been Delegate Dan Morheim speaking about his package of harm reduction bills introduced in the Maryland legislature. Uh, So thank you again so much and looking forward to uh, staying up to date on this. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to episode 31 of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Rochelle Young and me, Sam Tracy. The show is produced by Tyler Williams and our engagement director is Sarah Merrigan. We'd also like to thank Delegate Dan Morheim once again for joining us for the discussion. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, or you can also email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for more info about the show, links to our guests and news stories, and so much more. And finally, if you're listening to this on iTunes and like what you heard, please give us a rating and write a review. That'll really help us climb the charts and grow our community. So please remember to stay sensible, and we'll see you next week. Our outro song this week is a cover of the Mountain Goats' Love, Love, Love by Wes Meadows. King Saul fell on his sword when it all went Joseph's brothers sold him down the river for a song And Sonny Liston rubbed some tiger balm into his glove Some things he do for money And some he do for love, love, love sick, but he couldn't say why, when he saw his face reflected in his victim's twinkling eye, some things you'll do for money, and some you'll do for fun, but the things you do for love are gonna come back to you one by one, love, love is gonna take you by the hand. To the greenhouse, put a bullet in his brain. Snakes in the grass beneath our feet, rain in the clouds above. Some moments last forever, but some flare up with love, love, love.